Expedition 44 here again with Matt and Ryan. We have launched into a new series on Original Sin and we are two parts into it, meaning today is our third part. Matt, where are we headed? Um, all right, so today we're gonna look at um, original guilt and infant depravity specifically, and look at the child aspect of it. Last week, our last episode, which we recorded last week, we looked at Genesis 2 and 3 and kind of looked yes, at sir. the yes sir and um in genesis 2 and 3 we saw that that mankind took of the tree and they took of the knowledge they have the knowledge of good and evil um and the whole thing about the yetzer which are natural desires being part of our our human nature and we can choose between exercising the good or the evil and um, yeah, and so today we're going to kind of dive into original guilt and infant depravity. Those are the two things we're looking at. So, so first we're going to look at what does the Bible say about um, sin? Is it transferable or inheritable? Uh, the second thing is what does Bi the Bible say about the state of infants and children? Are they doomed from the womb? Do they inherit Adam's guilt? We're going to see what the text says. So... Matt and I are definitely on the free will side of mm -hmm. things. So if you're putting a line out there, I always like to say there's like, you know, extreme Calvinism over here and there's kind of extreme uh, free will over here. We don't like to put labels on that side because we don't think any of the labels really fit everything. So mm -hmm. we're just going to be free of labels, but that's kind of your, your timeline in here. So you have like a five point Calvinist over here. You have most of the reformed world a couple steps closer. Most churches are gonna be right in the middle. They've got some reformed tenets going on. Sometimes they usually don't yeah. really understand theologically. They're very influenced by Augustine and some of the theologies that came yeah. out from that and Catholicism and stuff And like then that. you've got your whole spirit world culture, spirit-led culture over here. Their charismatics, the Pentecostals, things like that. But the crazy thing is sometimes they're using language that's over here mm -hmm. and, you know, those two things sometimes don't really fit very well together. So, as usual, we're not leaving a rock overturned. We're looking at the whole thing and we're trying to give you a better theological lens for where you might land. And as you can imagine, this is really, in large part, talking about original sin is really a Calvinist conversation. So even though Matt and I are going to talk about how a Calvinist would view almost every conversation, every video we have, that word kind of comes out comparing the Calvinist to the free will. This is very much a reformed Calvinist conversation. Yep. And so we're going to start today with looking at what does the Bible say about sin and guilt? Is it transferable? Can we inherit Adam's guilt, Adam's sin? Um, so let's start looking at a few verses here today. I think that's best. Let's uh -huh. just jump in and get right to the exegesis. We'll show you some verses, and then we'll kind of get to the philosophical, ontological conversation yeah. after that. Um, so in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, we see Moses speaking to the people um, who were afraid about the ten spies' reports of the giants in the land and yeah. all of this, and, uh, and their report. And so they grumbled against the Lord, and Moses tells them that they will not enter the land uh, but he also declares this in Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. It says, Moreover, your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil, shall enter there, and I will give them the land, and they shall possess it. This is a really key verse, and so we always say that there's an exodus, exodus motive going on. It's a recursive motive over and over in Scripture. And so as the original exodus is going to 
be the main story of the motif, you're going to get this over and over. It's a theme throughout the Bible, and you don't see it once or twice, you see it over and over. So typically, what falls true for the original part of a motif or a theme is also going to play out the same way later. Yeah, so what we got here in this verse, it starts out with essentially the, the little children are innocent of the parents' sins. Yeah. Is what the big thing of, and it says that even since they're little children, that they're innocent because they have no knowledge of good and evil. They can't rightfully and choose, they aren't culpable for choosing good or evil yet. This is really interesting because this is a Torah statement. Mm -hmm. And so it goes back to when we started this series and we talked about the tree of good and evil of when are they given that. And so it's interesting that when Adam and Eve are sort of expelled out of there, it's because they've been given the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. yet this verse says that the young ones have no knowledge of good and evil. Are you guys making yeah. a connection on this? Yeah. According to Augustine and Calvin and Luther and all their followers, yeah. um, these children are actually born guilty and are born totally depraved, yet this says that they're innocent and they don't inherit the sin of their parents because they cannot actually choose, they don't have the knowledge of good and evil, so they are not held accountable for what their parents did wrong. So the verbiage in this verse is really important for two reasons. One, it, reiter it reiterates the knowledge of good and evil. The mm -hmm. Tova Ra yep. wasn't transferred necessarily out of the garden. Mm -hmm. That those that, that sin stuck with Adam wasn't going to go on and make everybody pay for it after mm -hmm. that. And yep. then it also shows uh, in kind of an analogical form that this is also the way that God is treating people for generations after this. Mm -hmm. His children after this are going to be treated in the same way. Yep. All right, so let's now look at Ezekiel. Um, the question is, can sons be punished for the sins of their father? Um, Ezekiel 18 explicitly states that God does not punish sons for the sins of the father. They are not guilty of their father's sins, and we are each accountable for our own sins. So let's read Ezekiel 18, 19 to 23. It's a little bit of a lengthy read, but it's going to speak for itself. Yeah. There's not a lot of commentary we need to give on it because this is yeah. just plainly read, it seems to say yeah. what we're saying. Yeah, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and has done them, he will surely live. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be on himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked one turns from all his sins which he has committed and observes my statutes and my practices, justice and righteousness, he shall surely live, he shall not die. All of his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness which he has practiced, he will live." Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live. So if there's any argument, whether or not the Bible speaks that there's going to be uh, a son or, you know, held accountable mm -hmm. for his father's actions, this should be, I mean, this is black and white. Yeah. It says no. Yeah, like, says, there's really no. Sins can't be transferred. It, yeah. it, it doesn't get any more. People are always looking, why doesn't the Bible just come out and say it black and white? Well, it does. It does right yeah. here. And Deuteronomy 24, 16 says the same thing. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, 
nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So sins cannot be transferred. We have at least two very strong Old Testament texts. One of them is a Torah text uh -huh. that's going to tell you it's right a second away Torah text. they can't do that. <laughs> yep. And so... So, according to God's law, guilt cannot be inherited or transferred. And it's pretty yep. black and white. Yeah, 2 Kings 14.6 says the same thing. Um, it quotes uh, when King Amaziah killed um, those who killed his father Josiah. He yeah. says this when they're looking at killing the rest of the sons of the ones who slayed um, Josiah. Now, hold on a second. I just want to say, before you read this, this is Second Kings, and there's, we also read a text out of Ezekiel. Both of those are interpreting Deuteronomy 24. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is Deuteronomy 24 would have been the law, basically, mm -hmm. and then the rabbis are going to further interpret the law. And so what you're reading in Deuteronomy 24 and, or I'm sorry, in Second Kings 14 and then the text in Ezekiel is it's going to be the way that they interpreted the law. And it goes hand in hand with what Deuteronomy 24 says. So both of them are making this crystal clear. So, I mean, we've got three black and white texts saying that sins are not transferred inherited yep it says but the sons of the slayers he did not put to death according to what is written in the book of the law of moses as the lord commanded saying the fathers shall not be put to death for the sons nor the sons be put to death for the fathers but each shall be put to death for his own sin so a theological word that you're going to hear is impute mm -hmm. and in the reform circles you're going to say that these sins are imputed or they're going to be transferred over something we've talked about the goat and yeah. how careful we are about saying when the hands are laid that that's not imp imputation imputation it's setting apart the goat for exactly. the purpose of taking the sins away <laughs> and so in this case amaziah refused to impute the sins onto the sons through God's law. He's yeah. saying we're not going to do that. He said that's against God's law, so yeah. we're not killing the sons. We're, the ones who murdered Josiah are the ones who died, not their sons. Now, we could keep going all day. I could actually go through the Old Testament and probably give you at least a dozen cases where this holds true, but let's, let's do one let's more. Let's do one more. Exodus 32, uh, we have the event of the idolatry with the golden calf, and um, God is upset and he's going to destroy the... the the Israelites and Moses goes up on the mountain to talk with God and he he intercedes on their behalf and says take me instead yeah um, he's he said leave them take me and God says no yeah. and why is that it's because sins can't be transferred or inherited it's against God's law it would be unjust for God to to put them on Moses and kill him. Now this is early, it's sort of backwards. So when Moses is asking this, he doesn't know necessarily right now that it's against God's law. Mm -hmm. He's he's. This kind of goes back to, we get this story of Job and we're gonna get in there earlier of when was Job written, Matt and I would fall, that it's a it's a really old story. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's in the storyline, it's before Moses going up on here. So this is way back then, but then it's carried over in oral tradition. And so there's a question in the timeline right now with Moses of the retribution principle. The retribution principle works two ways. Does God honor people, uh, namely physically, when they obey his laws? 
and then it goes the other way. When people don't obey God's laws, does are, he punish them? Are, does he punish them, or are those sins transferred? You might yeah. say, do they stay with you for generations to come? As we're going to get into, and so Moses isn't sure about that. So Moses is asking God because the Torah isn't given yet. Is this the way? Is this? Is this, does this work through you? And God, who is establishing himself as a kind, compassionate, merciful, and merciful, just God, Mishpah, is saying, no, I can't do that because I'm a just God. I can't transfer somebody's sin to somebody else. Yep. And so, this is even like idea is still in the water and carrying over into the time of Jesus. <laughs> so when we get to John chapter 9... Um, basically the disciples are asking about, um, about this blind man of, did he inherit basically the guilt or the sins of his father or is it because of his own guilt that he's this way? And Jesus says this, we've been given a lot of history lessons Mm -hmm. and this is going to turn into a little bit of a historical lesson at the same time. And so I'll have Matt kind of read this text and then we're going to give a little commentary or talk through it a little bit, but the, the problem is, Matt said, they're still wondering about this. So even though Moses was wondering, the Torah is given. A dozen clear. times it's reiterated that God doesn't work that way. It should be crystal clear. But the problem is, at this point, things have been very muddy. The mm-hmm. water has gotten muddied. So the second temple period, some people look at that or equate it with the 400 years of silence, Matt and I often say, is anything but silence. Yeah. I mean, there is so much going on. But it's, it's sort of bad rabbinical stuff yeah. that's going on. And so there's going to be stuff that really shouldn't be um, tried that are going to be questioned. And by the time of Jesus, I mean, the whole thing's gone south. I yeah. mean, like the whole system is messed up. And that's in large part what Jesus does is come to set the record straight. Yep. Uh, so John 9, 1 through 3, it says, And he passed by, he saw a blind man, a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It is neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So when you pull this up in an interlinear, we're always, you know, encouraging people to kind of go Bible hub, maybe Lagos if you have it and actually see what the Greek reads out of that. And it's gonna, when you look at it, it's like, it looks like it's using this word twice. Mm. And so it, it kind of in English, it would act like a double negative. But, but this is interesting because sometimes I say, do you just need an interlinear or do you actually need somebody with a THD, PhD in the language? And this is where I'd say like, the years that Matt and I have into this really help because when I read this, I read what he says, and essentially, you ready for this? What what his reply is, is it's a Hebrew idiom. It's where we get the phrase, not a chance. Yeah. We use that all the time. Yeah. And so when I Absolutely read this, not. I go like, Jesus didn't say this in Greek. He said this in Hebrew because it's a Hebrew idiom, and everybody in the room would have known exactly what he was saying. He would, would have said, not a chance, basically. Yeah. yeah. And, and, Go ahead. So, yeah, I said this, so there's still this idea, like we were talking about, is that um, that parents' sins could be passed on to generations, and Jesus is actually correcting that here. Now, he's not saying that they didn't sin, but he's not saying that those sins are transferred, or that his blindness is the reason 
why, you know, from sin. Right. He's he's saying that it's basically, he's denying that this man's condition was inherited based on somebody else's sin. Yeah, and so there's a couple things you have to kind of stop and do time out. Mm-hmm. The, the Reformed world is going to say, see, they're battling with Reformed theology way back in Jesus' time. And I would say... Absolutely not. You're about you're about 1,800 years early. Yeah, and so so you're that doesn't really work. They're not battling over reform theology. They're battling over Hellenism. Mm-hmm. That's the problem going on here. So uh, Hellenism would kind of say that that uh, it's kind of the karma principle today. That you're you're going to have to pay for everything that you do negatively on this this earth. And a lot of people still think that way. What goes around comes around. The kind of mm-hmm. thinking that like. You know, God, and this is where we kind of get this, God is going to judge you for that. I think there's a Johnny Cash song mm-hmm. about that, you know. And uh, the Bible doesn't really speak to that. In fact, the overwhelming Old Testament version of this is you're probably going to get away with it. Out of God's yeah. super yeah. just and super yeah. mercifulness, his compassion. I mean, this is the mm-hmm. prophets over and over in the Old Testament. God, why don't you... Something. Why don't you do this? But they do look forward to the day of the Lord when God will put everything right, but yeah. it might not be in this life. I mean, you think about Jonah. Jonah's yeah. mad at God because he doesn't like strike Nineveh and destroy him, you know? And God's saying, well, I'm sorry, that's not really my nature. You yeah. know, that's not who I am. Yeah. And and Jonah's getting upset with him over that. And so this, this Hellenistic idea is that almost that you're going to be stuck with these decisions that you make for generation after generation after generation. And that was the prevalent thought of not just Jesus's time, but the second temple period. So for hundreds of years, they're thinking that way. And so I'm going to say, this is where you need to remove yourself from that kind of thinking. That's not biblical thinking. That's Greek mythology. And so if you think that way, that's your roots aren't in the Old Testament or not in the Torah. It's in Greek mythology. You're you're a result of Aristotle and Plato and, and yeah. all the bad Greek thinking is the reason that you think that way. That's not built into Old Testament type thinking. Yeah, and so when we're going through this, the common objection someone might bring up is um, in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 where we've talked about this many times and like... Um, People who are into retribution, God, you know, getting yep. even with people, um, which we believe God will set all things right, but yep. they'll bank on the second half of basically this whole um, thing where God describes his own character. Um, and so it says this, the Lord passed in front of him, Moses saying this, yep. the Lord, the Lord, God, God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression, and sin, but he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. All right, and explain this to me. This is going to take some time. (laughs) And so in simple reading, when you read this, it would seem to say, and I've heard so many people say this. See, sin is transferred. Yeah, in (laughs) fact, you can even find commentaries that say this. And so um, uh, Hamilton has a, uh, what he calls an exegetical commentary on Exodus. And he kind of implies this. Now, I wouldn't say Hamilton is reformed or Calvinistic. He's kind of middle of the road, but he kind of, ref, you know, kind of 
expresses that he thinks this verse means that, you know, for generations and generations, yeah. you're going to be responsible for your father's sin. And I would say that's a terrible translation of this verse. And I would say you just got to be careful either either commentator isn't digging deep enough or they have no understanding of an Old Testament Hebraic understanding because you just, you can't really get there. And so I want to kind of go back to John 9 of Jesus. Jesus is sort of going back and speaking to Exodus 34 at this point. And like I said, the other dozen verses that speak to this, it's still in the water, as Matt said. Like they're still wondering this, but they're not, they're not really wondering it based on based on what the Bible says. I think the audience in John 9 is going to be more of a Hellenistic. You think of who was John? Who is he writing towards? Mm -hmm. This is the conversation is John's audience is a Hellenistic audience. And so that's what he's, that's what he's speaking to right now. But, but Jesus is going to clarify it anyway. That's my favorite thing about Jesus is he clarifies yeah. everything from the Old Testament going into the New Testament. And so, so when you look at this, a lot of people just want to read an English translation. They want to say, well, if it says this, that must mean what it is. And I would say there's an awful lot of English translations that are going to steer you down the wrong road. Yeah, we... We were talking a little bit ago kind of about the whole King James only thing. Yeah. Um, they'll say like, all right, my English translation is enough because it's, you know, because the King James is the, you know, authoritative word of God. Right, right. Like, okay, what did the King James get translated from? Right. <laughs> you know, Greek. And all language is contextual within its original context, yep. what it yep. meant to the original authors and that. And so when we go... Back, I mean, still, you got to go, like, look at what did this mean in Greek? What did it mean in its original culture? And, yeah, so many people just get hung up on, like, are our English translations enough? I was, I'd say, like, yes, in some ways. I'm like, they're, they're good, but it, you should go look and see what did these words mean when they were actually written? Like I said, all language is contextual to a time period in history, yeah. and it has to mean what it meant in that time period. And again, we say this all the time. It's the quote from John Walton, the Bible wasn't written to us, it was yep. written for us, yep, right? Exactly. And, and Matt, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, you wonder why there's... 30 translations, English mm -hmm. translations of the Bible Every out translation there. is an interpretation. Every one of them. And mm -hmm. so you, that's why we are always saying, like, get an interlinear out. Like, mm -hmm. see what the Greek or the Hebrew says. How is it used elsewhere in the Bible? Yes. Keep going. Keep working. So right now, we're going to, I'm, we're just going to kind of take a time out on Exodus 34. It is likely in our top five favorite verses in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you hear me preach a sermon, which I don't do very often, You'll see this. <laughs> You'll probably see Exodus 34 every time. I'm going to bring it up every single time because this is our character of God. We need to stick with who God says he is. And this is one of the few times that God just comes out and says, mm -hmm. this is who I am. Yeah, and when so, I was meeting with, uh, I had lunch, like I said in the last episode, with the Orthodox priest uh, um, that I befriended last week. And everything we talked about, probably 10 different topics, but he kept coming back to this verse and God's character on every topic yep, yep. with him too. Like a broken record. Yeah, and that's, uh -huh. I'm sure that's the way we sound, but it's so important. Mm -hmm. And so, so what this seems to say 
when the translation that we just read you, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, this English translation does seem to have some Reformed theology built into it. And a lot of translations do. You look at the ESV or the RSV, and there are kind of translations that were basically mm -hmm. built with a Reformed bend to them anyway. Mm -hmm. But I'll say oftentimes the people in the middle are also going to, if the Reformed camp has been successful in anything, it's convincing the rest of the world that that's what the Bible says. Yeah. And so, and I, and I wouldn't say that's accurate. And so I'd say you need to dive into some of these. So I'm going to spend just a few minutes on this. So there are four verses in the Old Testament that talk very similar yeah, three to four generations in yeah it. Yep. you've got you got this one this is the main one exodus 34 you've also got exodus 25 deuteronomy 5 9 and numbers 14 18 and so all of them are going to kind of speak to like generational curses this goes back to what i said about the retribution principle on the timeline as early in genesis they were wondering if this was going to happen now Theologically, there are several different takes on this, and I don't necessarily want to, it would take me a long time to justify each take on it. Uh, you know, everything from a Greg, Greg Boyd open, God Jeez, might be yeah. thinking about changing that to, to, to everything under the sun. But I want to just kind of, kind of talk about it. So the first thing I want to say is, Jewish scholarship would never read any of the Old Testament with this reformed bend yep. to it. The inheriting of sins. You will not yep. find a Jewish scholar anywhere that's going to say that the Bible even insinuates any kind of inheritance of sin. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because... The Torah was clear. We, we read it. <laughs> we read you some black and white issues, and they said those are so black and white that there's no room to interpret this any different way. And Matt and I would firmly... Agree. Agree, yeah. And so so what do you do? In theology, if you get to a point where the Bible is so clear over and over and over, then you get to a verse that seemingly says something contradictive, theology is about working it out, coming out with a better view of that. So like in anything, we're not singling out the situation. This is, Matt and I have about seven textures of interpretation that we have approached every single part of the Bible with. We already even though you didn't realize it when he was talking about the Walton thing and, mm -hmm. you know, not written, you know, to you, for, for you, you, that yeah. kind of thing. That's what he was talking about. And so one of these textures is, if it seems to be contradictive at all, how do you handle it? So, like I said, nobody in the Hebraic world for thousands of years would have viewed this that way. opening the so, door for that. Yeah. You get that just in, uh, there's kind of Jewish liturgies, and one of them is kind of referred to as like the, uh, the compassion of God, and it kind of talks about 13 attributes of God. And I mean, it's resuscitated over and over, mm -hmm. both in messianic and traditional Jewish settings. And I mean, that reiterates this idea that like God is not holding generations accountable for that one. But it does mean something, and that's what I want to get into. So before I do that, I, I want to interpret this as what the Reformed or Calvinistic side would say. They're going to use this... You're going to notice oftentimes in Calvinism, they're going to find the one text and they're going to say this, this is the doctrine that we built yeah, it on. Yeah. So in the Old Testament, like I said, 
there's there's four that talk about generations. They use that whether you know it's more of a generations word rather than a teledot like in Genesis yeah. two. But it's 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 talking about your sons, your daughters, daughters things yeah. like that. And so if this is a statement about God's future punishment of the innocent because of the guilty, then you're gonna think that Adam is the federal head of the human race, and that's going to lead you to the necessity... Of a payment on the cross. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so that's where all of this reformed penal theory, ransom, all that stuff are going to land here. And in the Old Testament, really, even looking at Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and Numbers 14, you're not going to get that out of it. This is the only verse, Exodus 34, that you might, might. get that way. But I'm even going to say the only way you get that way is to read a poor English mm -hmm. translation. If you read it in Hebrew, there's no way you would get there. And doesn't a lot of it land on the word visiting in yep. that thing? So yep. like what that word is what? Pacad, right? Yep. So what do, what's that better translated as? So whenever you see this word, and it's it's not a minor word. It's used over 300, 300 yeah. times. Yeah, yeah that's, mm -hmm. that's a, a lot. lot. That means yeah. we have a lot to draw on. And so whenever you see it, it it's kind of this idea of, of oversight and this is where you also kind of get questionable on this because when you look at it of the 300 times about mm -hmm. 50 of them also imply that there is some kind of change going on and this is mm -hmm. I hate to bring Boyd up again but this is this is yeah. gonna be in his in his benefit his favor yeah, yeah he's, he's gonna say well it means change an awful lot but you read the word paka and it's gonna it's gonna be visiting the iniquity and this is where I'm going to go to my favorite word. It's a contronym. And so as you read this, there's this opposite thing going on. That even though it reads one way, it's actually emphasizing the other. The other. It's kind of the refrain, opposite. Refrain, refrain. Yeah. Yes, refrain, refrain. There you Although go. on plain reading, it might look like you're being held accountable for the generations. A better reading is going to be saying... For the third or fourth generation, God is going to walk with them. Yeah, they're gonna, so he's going to look after them. It's going to return to that Edenic principle of mm -hmm. even though you walked away from me, I'm going to now turn back and because of my mercy and my mm -hmm. compassion, I'm still going to walk with you. Yeah, so a few like Jewish interpretations that I've seen of this is some say that, um, that when the father sins, the effects of his sins might be like experienced by yep. the third or the fourth In fact, generation. you should experience yeah. it sometimes. Yeah. yeah, but it's not that, um, but it's in God's mercy that he's not going to let that last forever yes. is part of it. And the other one is like, all right, so are these sons observing the behavior of their fathers and he's not going to hold them just because they can say, oh, well, I learned it from my father, so I'm right. not guilty of it. He's going to punish them. The one who sins will be punished, what we saw over and over in Torah. He's not, it could be, some rabbis say that there's no excuse for the sons if they're repeating the same behavior as their fathers, that he holds each person individually in every generation accountable for their own sins. Yes, you summed it up great. Yeah. And so you can see this now, I'm going to go back to the translations, mm -hmm. and so you can see this if you read a better translation. And so it's hard to beat, in my mind, when you're just looking at the Old Testament. Now, I, I realize that some people are going to, they don't want to touch this translation because it's a traditional Jewish mindset. But when you're just interpreting the Old Testament, it's a really good translation. So you have the JPS, like Jerusalem Targum type of thing. Listen to the way that they read this. Remembering 
the sins of the wicked fathers upon the rebellious sons. And so... It's like the sons are repeating the sins of the fathers is the way that they interpret it there. So where you have to land here is what's going on is that the sentiment is going to be to repeat what your father does. Mm -hmm. We get that all the time. So, Like father, like son. We I hear that idiom all the time. I started as a photographer, and my kids are really into photography. Mm -hmm. my, my one son is really yeah. into theology. My oldest right now is trying to decide what school to my go to. My kids are all into music. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so, so just because of typically what the father does, the kids are going to follow after that but they don't have to mm -hmm. and that's sort of what exodus 34 is saying is you're not going to understand my mercy and compassion and the prophets didn't yeah They're, you're not going to understand it because because it's my mind is greater than yours that's uh -huh. the job thing going on there yeah, i mean like, it's even in isaiah my my ways are higher than your ways my thoughts are higher than your yeah. thoughts read the previous verse what are his ways and thoughts it's his mercy <laughs> but my compassion my mercy is going to walk with you and so even though the tendency is going to be to fo follow the ways of your your father, if your father was wicked, don't do that. Yeah. And I'm going to usher you, to shepherd you into not walking in that wickedness. And so in a in a Hebraic thought, the most wicked, and you can put this if you wanna if you kind of want to get into the circles, orthodox hell and stuff <laughs> like that. The ones farthest away from God are going to be the ones that continue generation after generation to walk in the wickedness of their, their fathers. fathers. Yep. And so even though God is trying to pull them out of that generational curse, you might read yep. it, even though in his compassion and his mercy, he's doing everything to shepherd them away from that, sometimes they're just going to go there. And in Hebraic thought, those are the most wicked. Those are the worst of all yep. the people. Don't find yourself in that place or in that predicament. So we see this all over in the Psalms. That is the wicked. It's this classification yep. of humanity yep. of of the wicked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's what the generational curse thing is. It's actually, like I said, it's a contronym. It's not saying you will be cursed Curse. for generation. Mm -hmm. It's saying, I want you to break that. That through yeah. me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shepherd you through a better walk as you go through there. But it is a recognition, a recognition that because of the fallen earth, that is going to be the tendency. It wasn't given to you, especially by God. It mm -hmm. wasn't. It wasn't built into your DNA. I say all the time, God's not doing that. Mm -hmm. Don't put that on God. Mm -hmm. But that's what you see over and over as people trying yep. to do that. All right. So summary: What have we seen here in this section? And um, basically, what we, what we have seen is that sins can't be transferred from the guilty onto the innocent. Yep. Uh, that children are not culpable for their parents' sins. We'll get more into that in a second. Yep. Uh, that God will punish the one who sins. The sons won't be punished for the fathers. The fathers right. won't be punished for the sons. Thus, original guilt, original sin must be false because God cannot impute Adam's sin to us as it's against his nature. Yeah. So this is kind of one of those moments where you sit back and I realize that this might be different than what you've thought your entire mm -hmm. life. And you haven't probably come to this place intentionally. I mean, Matt and I, at CTS, we're, we are coaching, we are talking with a lot of pastors. And I mean, the, the majority of our students are pastors. And they 
unknowingly bring a lot of this, I call it junk, into their theology. And so, so much of it is trying to, you know, clarify where where did you get that from? Why do you think that way? Because that's not necessarily what the Bible teaches. And as we just showed you in the Old Testament, it's black and white over and over and over. Why would you just believe that you could inherit the sins of your father or that sin could be transferred particularly in the Old Testament, and Jesus reiterated it in the New Testament, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, if it comes from Jesus' lips, that's the one we should trust the most. You think. Yes, so one bad part of this that we need to address secondly is about the nature of infants and children. Are, are children or infants inherently evil because they've been passed on this has been doomed written the into their dna yeah. doom from the womb yeah. yeah is that the way they are now most people when i say that they would say oh that sounds terrible of course they're not yet if you followed this calvinistic mindset mindset they would mm -hmm. and so yesterday um well yesterday from when we're recording this yeah. is uh was sanctity of human life sunday and so it's very much um we we love to celebrate that and yeah. we're we were very supportive of like new day women's clinic in our area yep. um what gretel who's in our small group is the director there and uh we had her speak um on on life at our church and always like we said in our first episode when we talk about um the abortion issue we say that they're the most vulnerable the most innocent yep. among us yep. yet according to reformed theology if you're inheriting adam's guilt and God's wrath is against them from the moment of conception because of their because of Adam's sin that they're inheriting then how can you truly take that stance so this is a hard one because when we just say that like do you believe that a baby is innocent innocent <laughs> yeah or do you believe that baby is naturally defiled guilty if mm -hmm. the baby dies on birth where they go? <laughs> Where do they go? Or, or, and on one, one extreme, and I'll call this an extreme, on the Calvinist extreme, you're going to believe that that baby, if you fall into ECT, you're going to say that this baby now that is lost on the table, you might say, is mm -hmm. going to be now yeah. tormented forever. And my question is, does that follow the Exodus 34 description of who God yeah. says he is? Yeah, um, here's a quote from Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous... Uh, Puritan reformers, he kind of sums up this belief saying that it is most just, exceedingly just, that God should take the soul of a newborn infant and cast it into the eternal torments of hell due to Adam's sin. Yeah, it's pretty much point blank there. Uh, or as Vadi Bakum said, as we put it, that basically all babies are born as vipers and diapers. The reason that they're born so small is so they don't kill you, and the reason they're so cute is so you don't kill them. This is why theology is important, because so many people find themselves, you know, kind of using Reformed theology's language. You know, like I've said at the beginning of this, like when you, when you lead somebody to Christ, you're almost always using some original sin language into that. And, and I would argue that that's not a very good biblical platform when you're talking about mm -hmm. salvation, sanctification, things mm -hmm. like that. And so you're, as we're saying this, and we quote this thing from Jonathan Edwards, and, and we're talking about, you know, do you believe a baby should be tortured forever? Like most of our listeners are going, yeah. no, 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 that sounds no, 
sounds wow. terrible. But he said it's exceedingly just for God to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so. so let's let's take on a better view. Yeah, we looked at De- Deuteronomy one thirty nine um, just a, a few minutes ago, and we declared that God declared that the wilderness, the children of the wilderness generation were innocent because they had not known good or evil. Yeah. So really, we got to ask the question, who are we going to believe, the proponents of Reformed theology or God, yeah. you know, yeah. or the Bible? So Now yeah. let's keep going with this because this is the beat the dead horse, don't leave a rock unturned. unturned. Like we really want you, you over to and get over. this. Yeah, so let's go to Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. I'll read it for you. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. You all know this verse. Yep. Behold, a virgin, young woman in Hebrew, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Pay attention to this verse. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Now, you've all got that memorized, but not the last line. Yeah, we know verse 14, but we don't look at verse 15. Right. See, it says that it's something that this person grows into and yeah. able to do this that says that you can't be held guilty if you can't choose between good or evil right uh, we read a quote from justin martyr in the last episode where he says that it's unjust for god to punish someone who can't choose between good and evil and when we were talking about the yetzer hatav i was doing everything i could to not bring up isaiah 7 because i knew we, we were going to get to it yeah, yeah. But this is this could go back to that conversation this is a you are good at birth. Yeah. So it's saying that we're innocent, that it's basically it's saying that the the miracle part in this is that at a young age this the this baby, this kid, is able to choose yeah. between good and evil at the time that he's eating curds and honey. So at a young age he is mature. That's yep. that's kind of the the miracle part of this in that, which means that that's not normal. Right. <laughs> you know? So, now, I also want to go to Psalm 22. Uh, you preached a sermon on it. We, you, you've done a lot of work yeah. on Psalm 22. It's really good because it's sometimes what the Reformed camp will use to say God, a lot God. of things yeah. out of Psalm 22. But this is 9 and 10. It might be a little unfamiliar. Um, Yet you are who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. That means what? God has babies at their conception. They in are sense. they're they're yeah. in God. They haven't yeah. walked away. Yeah. That at birth babies are innocent. Uh, so let's look at Jeremiah now. Um, this one is a big one. This is the Lord declaring that babies are innocent. Um, this is the whole like Moloch issue and the. Israelites are sacrificing yep. their babies to, to Molech, and God describes basically this. This is in Jeremiah 19, uh, verses 4 to 6. It says, Because you have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that they nor their fathers nor king the kings of Judah have ever known, and because you have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built high places to Baal, and burn children in the fires as burnt offerings to Baal, the thing that I have never commanded or spoke of, nor did ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth, but will be the valley of Ben, or the valley of Ben Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. So this is where I might send you to. We have a whole video on this. Yeah, and so, in our hell series. Yeah, we went over. 
this a lot. Huge, huge part on this on the Hell series. There's also one if you go to Expedition 44 YouTube channel and you just type into to the search Molech, you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff yep. on that too. I mean, a whole video and it's got, I think it's got a half a million views at this point or something like mm -hmm. that. There's, there's a lot on mm -hmm. this. And so I think if you're struggling here with, do you believe what we're saying about the Molech part of this? I would say probably go watch some of those other videos. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep this one a little bit more on the light side, even though we could we could talk for hours, hours on, on just how this influences this reformed theological side. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jeremiah 7, 30 through 33, and Jeremiah 32, 32 through 38, basically say the same thing that yeah. we said here. It says, the burning of the innocent never entered into God's mind. Right. And notice the babies are declared innocent or not sinful by God. Yep. They're not born guilty of original nope. sin, but they become sinners when they sin, as we have seen through all the Torah, through all those verses we read last week. Um, and, and then, when they're culpable, they can be held accountable for it. So this is where I want you to think philosophically, ontologically, and we've already made this statement mm -hmm. in this series yeah. once, but I want to reiterate it again. If you are of a reformed Calvinist bend, you're, you're really going to say that, as I've stated over and over, that babies inherently aren't good, that, 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 they don't, that they're not going to apply to God's mercy and compassion and because of that they're they're not going to make the cut so to speak mm -hmm. and they're going to end up in whatever form of hell you believe mm -hmm. in and so so that's a problem mm -hmm. I I've, I've kind of said this before but like essentially by a Calvinist mm -hmm. saying that they're pro-choice they're yeah. not pro-life you, you, you can't hold that feeling and still say that you're pro-life that those two I things mean, Calvinistic election in and of itself is pro-choice yeah <laughs> and so I, I hear this all the time people saying that they're they're conservative Christians they want to believe that they're conservative Christians yet they hold to these reform views that are not conservative they weren't part mm -hmm. of the early church they didn't come around till the 17 1800s they're not traditional they're untraditional and they're going to be very much pro-choice. And so I, I hear people holding to these reformed ideas, but then they come out and they say they're huge advocates of pro-life. Pro -life. And, and the, we thank you for that. <laughs> but it doesn't work. I go, yeah, your it, theology it, it, doesn't work that way. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, some of my best friends who are, um, who are Calvinistic are extremely involved in pro-life stuff. And yeah. and yeah, like you said, thank you for that because... It, it's needed um, in this day and age, but also usually they'll they're come back to this as well. All all humans are made in the image of God, and so they're worthy of life. And we don't know who God is saved and who hasn't. But still, yeah. you know, the original sin thing kind of cancels that out. So I don't want to pat ourselves on the back, but if you ask anybody, any scholar, what Expedition Forty Four is really known for, what they're going to say is we've come up with a really good lens of which scripture works and fits together. Our theology completely agrees across the board. We don't have to do a lot of gymnastics or work through a whole lot of hard things because we're not taking on the labels or the camps or anything. We're just looking at what does the Bible say and we're interpreting mm -hmm. that. And so, so that's one of the things I haven't liked about that. But even just looking at 
Calvinism and Reformed theology, like, if this were the only theological thing, I would say I can't buy into that because it doesn't agree. I believe God is pro-life, and this theology doesn't line up that way. I can't do that. Yeah, so let's look a little bit at the parable of the prodigal son. We probably all know this, um, but let's look at it as kind of like a paradigm for maybe the, the nature of man or the nature of babies. And this parable is found in Luke uh, 15, verses 11 to 32. And before Matt dives into there, I'm, I'm just going to say that parables are hard interpretation. Mm -hmm. I've said over and over, you shouldn't take a single parable and draw your whole doctrine out of that parable. Yeah. We're not doing that no. right here. So what we're doing is we're taking the rest of the scripture and showing you how it's black and white, but then we're going to show a parable and say, even this story is going to reiterate that kind of thinking. Yep. Um, so yeah, we're not starting with the parable. We're right. adding the parable on top of all the other evidence we've already put forward. Yeah. So we know that there's a father who has two sons. One of the sons, um, they're both in the father's house. One of the sons basically comes to the father and say, hey, I want my inheritance, which we've talked about this in other videos. It means you're yeah. dead to me. Yeah. Um, and so the son goes off, squanders all of the inheritance. A famine hits in a far off land. He realizes, basically in his pigsty, that he'd be better off as a slave in his father's right, house. Right. <laughs> um, so he comes back, and what you would think of, there'd either be a kazaza ceremony, which right. is like try, the pe people of the town trying to kill him, or that he would become a slave yeah. in his father's house. But instead, the father runs to meet him, which yep. is bearing shame, because yep. it was shameful to run for a man of that age. Um, he gives him a robe and a ring, which means royalty and authority, yeah. and Sandals welcomes him. Yeah, yeah, welcomes him back into the house. Uh, kills the fatted calf, and basically says, "My son, who is dead, is now alive." Now remember our conversation last week about the metaphor of being dead in sin. And you did that really well yeah. in like thirty seconds. seconds. So yeah. Matt and I actually speak on this. We were involved in a trace deist thing, and we. We talk about this a lot, and it takes us usually about 45 minutes. We need yeah. to make a video on this sometime. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we've actually made a video on the prodigal yeah. son. We've talked about it a lot throughout other videos. We probably need to show you the whole thing, because it's yeah. a beautiful story, and yeah. it's amazing. And I'd say through this Trace Dias weekend, this is one of the main things that's hugely transformational to get people in the, mi the right mindset of making better decisions, lifelong mm -hmm. decisions for God. But you, you did that well Thanks. in just summing it up in a few seconds. Yeah, so let's look at takeaways from this. The son is born in the father's house, just as we're born in the father's house, innocent. Yeah, right. So yeah, and then a time comes that he can choose to stay in his father's house or squander the inheritance. So if you're tracking, this is, this is a picture of the prodigal son of everybody's life. And mm -hmm. so they're going to start out with a clean slate. Yep. That, that's yeah. exactly what the story says it's kind of inarguable when you read it that way but then they have a decision to make are they going to go this way are they going to go the way of their father maybe if that was wicked or mm -hmm. are they i mean in this case he didn't have a wicked father yet he goes wicked anyway yeah and so the father's merciful welcomes the son back into the house um and and when he comes back he's repentant we see he reinstates that inheritance the same is true of us when yeah. we turn back to God. So therefore, I don't believe this talks about us being, being born dead in our sins. Right. We right. become dead in our sins yep. based on what we do. I think this also plays against Calvinism's irresistible grace because the son wasn't forced to come yes. back, yeah. but he realized the character of his father 
and chooses to come back to that. So if the story was written from a Calvinist bent, and it could have been from the author, it would have had the father going out and looking for his son around the world and dragging him back. That would have been an irresistible grace. Yet he's just, he's not going after him. He's just sitting there waiting till the son in of his own free will makes that, that decision. And so, you know, I, I say sometimes there's no tractor beam in the story. You know, Mm -hmm. this is where we want to, we want to get, we want to start getting into this fairy tale land of Mm -hmm. sci-fi movies and like, that's not biblical theology. Like what the mm-hmm. store, what the parable says, and again, it's mm-hmm. not just this parable. It's the Bible over and over says that irresistible grace thing. It, I don't see it in there. Yeah. He got God leaves people out there to make their own choices. Yet when out of their own choice, they do decide to come back. They're welcomed with open arms, and then we see Jesus running out to him to 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 kind of spare in. the kazaza <laughs> ceremony the mm-hmm. pot breaking as Matt yeah. said and wrap his arms around him and pull him back in and give him the the authority the, ring, the yeah. inheritance and everything else yep and so kind of i think the prodigal son though we can't always read too much into parables we've supported it with the rest <laughs> we've supported it with scripture elsewhere i think the prodigal son and when we use this as a paradigm is kind of a silver bullet to calvinism and original sin yeah you know there's one time and this is so many years ago that i think i can say this and it won't offend somebody but we were on one of these tracedius weekends and like it's the parable the the the, the talk is written into the weekend like it's one mm-hmm. of those things so there's some things that are called essentials that you have to do and this is one of them and we got to this point where i i was the head spiritual director and i'm getting ready to talk about the the parable and like there's a there's usually three pastors there and one of them was it's multi-denomination one of them had a huge i mean he was a all-in five-point calvinist and he actually got up and walked out of the room like he didn't want to be there for the time of the prodigal son it's kind of the (laughs) silver bullet to that camp yeah so let's look at now um transition to maybe some infant depravity proof texts and and so we're going to look at some in the Psalms um, and then some in Job and kind of the main ones that people pull from to try to prove, oh, see, the you're, you're sinful from birth. And these are going to be generational chains. And so mm-hmm. I, I've prayed over people multiple times that the generational chains might be broken. But the difference is I'm not saying that somebody at birth is is has to go that way they're not born that way they're they're not even like that doesn't even necessarily give them an emphasis to go that way unfortunately due to due to the muck of the worth most people follow the path of their fathers Mm -hmm. and and that's just the you know the the unfortunate path that they walk they'd rather walk even even seeing somebody it just blows me away a lot of times if you see your father and you, by a later age, usually by your 20s, if your father was a train wreck, you see that they are a train wreck, yet almost everybody takes on, you know, they, they walk that way, they take on traits. And I'll go back to our Trace Diaz thing. This is one thing we teach all the time is you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Don't take on those trains. Like right now, you can make a decision to break those generational some people call them curses. I hate to say it that yeah. way, you know, but mm-hmm. you can break those chains. You yeah. can make a decision. That's the whole Joshua thing. Choose this day. You, you know, serve. you can do this. God is going to walk with you. There's no reason you have yeah. to go down that road. Yes, sir. Hot 
Exactly. <laughs> All right. So uh, Psalm 58.3 says this. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. All right. So the there's, wic- there's kind of a... Uh, first reading on this yeah like you would say this like, is oh, kind of a proof text yeah you know, you but would... then when you look at it closer what's it say so the wicked again like we talked about they're the subset of humanity yep. um so it's not saying that this is all mankind nope. it says the wicked uh next it says they go astray that means they aren't born astray that it's somewhere they go read carefully the words are important even in english it's not putting this as yes. birth and then it says that they become this way from birth it means it's something that they go into after birth. It's not in birth. Right. And so, so I'd say Psalm 58 is actually very carefully clear using the words go astray and from, even yeah. in English. And I'm going to say in Hebrew, there's no question. But yeah. if you're reading it in English, go astray and from are important. Yeah, it's very similar to what we spoke about in the last episode when we compared Genesis 6 yeah. and 8 when it talks about evil from their youth. Yep. Um, it's not something they're born with. It's something that they walk into as as they grow psalm 51 5 is another very similar one that's uh-huh. often kind of used as an infant depravity text it says behold i was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me so again at first reading you're going to just plainly you go, read that and you're going to go oh man does that mean i was like born with the iniquity and my and the sin and you go no it says exactly the opposite yeah um when you actually read this in hebrew it's talking about that david was conceived basically the it was the the mother who was in sin when when she conceived him and when we get into kind of some hebrew interpretations of this it's about that basically david's mother and adultery so matt and i are not afraid to go extra biblical yeah (laughs) i think you know that if you've watched our films at all we're we're gonna say and we're getting ready to make mm-hmm. a film on this eventually. But, but we're going to say there's some inspiration going on, truly, mm-hmm. I believe, in the canonical works. Mm-hmm. But I'm also going to say there's, there's a backstory. There's a backstory. There's a mm-hmm. commentary out there. Some commentaries might get it right. Some mm-hmm. of them might get it more wrong. You read any of these different things, and they're going to give you different versions of different stuff. And it might be one person's. It's it's We even get this even in the... Even in the Gospels, how like, you know, John's version of it might seem to disagree with Luke's, but when you harmonize it, they can work together. That yeah. This is the lens of theology I was talking about earlier. And so, so when you start digging around and you say, what does this verse mean? You can actually find a lot written out there about David's mother, mm-hmm. and it's going to raise some questions for you. A little yeah, bit. and so the... The Hebrew never says that David started out condemned in sin, but the act of his conception was sinful. That's what we get from the Bible, so, just to be clear. But the this Bible, is, yeah, and this yeah. isn't concupiscence, though, right, like what we've right. been talking about. So what is the context of this psalm? So let's look at Psalm 51 is about David's sin with Bathsheba. Yep. And David is putting his sin with Bathsheba in parallel with his mother's sin and his conception. So in the in the traditional Jewish world, Messianic Jewish world, I've been talking a lot about that. There's going to be a very commonly accepted view. And the, the view is basically going to be that David, I hate to use these words, but it was like a bastard child view. Mm-hmm. And you Just don't, like a half son. Yeah, you don't really know. We, we don't have everything. So again, when you get into the extra biblical stuff, there's different commentaries or opinions on what that might have meant. So it might have meant that David was conceived out of a sinful relationship. Mm-hmm. And and in the Old Testament, 
we don't get the commentary. God's not saying God's not saying right or wrong. He's just he's you're just reading the way culture was. So yeah. you know that people in the Old Testament they had lots of like a man didn't have to be a king to have concubines. That was pretty Absolutely. common that you you laid with different. I mean, you get the the Abraham Hagar story yeah. and that and everything like that. So mm -hmm. that was common. So we don't know exactly what the deal with David and his mother was. Some some scholars say, kind of like a half son or a concubine. And in the Bible, even though we don't read that, we get pictures of it. Yeah. So when I mean, you see in Samuel um, when David. Oh, and Samuel comes to anoint one of Jesse's sons as king. Why did they why not did they present not, them? Yeah. yeah, why did they not present David? They brought all the other sons in. He's like, are these all your boys? And he said, well, there's David. He's out in the field. It's like so, they were hiding him. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't considered a true son. And this points to some of this backstory that we get in, in Judaism. And, and like we say, um, the people originally, the original audience of the scriptures, they are high context readers. You know, they're high-context listeners. They know the background story where we don't. We're low-context readers. Right. And so that's, you have to take into some of that background information yeah. to truly get a fully, you know, orb trans, like, uh, interpretation of Scripture. But this fits so well with the whole thing of Scripture. So when we look at this story, I mean, they weren't proud of him. They were hiding him. They, they knew that the king was coming to select or, or, yeah, the, or prophet. The, the prophet was coming to select the next king, I should say, and they they put away the one that they didn't think lived up. The, yeah. the the part of the family that they didn't want anybody to know about, yet he becomes the next king because he was supposed to be the descent, as we later find out when you back read the story, he was leading the way to the line of the Messiah, and the Messiah mm -hmm. was going to become from the normal people, from yeah. from you know, the dirt mm -hmm. of the ground, the second Adam, so to speak. Yeah, so as we've seen here, also when it says that I was brought forth, this word, I think it's only used like three times in the yeah. Hebrew scriptures, and every time it talks about an animal in heat. It's not the normal word for conception. No, no. I'm like, so you got to see that there's something yeah. weird going on when they're using this word as something that's not normal. Again, um, it says that it's, David's sin and iniquity, or sorry, David's mother's sin and iniquity, not David born that way. And yeah. it doesn't say David was born in sin. But if you look at like the NIV and the NLT, they translate this horribly. It's the wrong path. And this is where I want to go back and say like you can never go wrong with just getting into like a JPS yes. translation. Yeah. Like again, like as much time has gone into any of our English translations I mean, when you look at an Old Testament translation, a Torah translation like that, you're looking at thousands of years of rabbis, you know, just painstakingly working through the text. And so this is, the JPS reads this way, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. That's the same thing, yet yeah. we don't read it that way when we first read it in the awful English translations. I mean, this one doesn't even really get into conception or anything like that. Yeah. It just talks about sin being before me. Yeah, and remember, the whole thing, um, Psalms are poetic, right? He's writing a song, a poem that reflects his conception and the sin of his mother and David's sin with Bathsheba, and he's putting them in parallel right next to each other. Yeah. It's nothing about original sin or concupiscence. 
it's that's just a horrible way to read this. And it's it's interesting that this Hebrew translation is going to use the word transgression in this because mm -hmm. when you say transgression, that automatically takes you to the action that I just did that I'm accountable yeah. for. And that's where this this conversation, if you've been tracking for the three episodes, this is what Matt and I are saying is that you are responsible for the actions that you do. You're not responsible. You didn't you didn't get brought in to this world already with transgressions. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. So let's move on to Job. Job has three major proof texts that those who hold to original sin go to to try to prove it there. So we're going to read through those. First one is Job 15, 14 to 16. And I've already set the context for this. So Job is most likely, uh, very few people are going to argue that it's a very, very early story. Yeah. Now, where this gets controversial is that it probably... When did it reach its final form? Right. The final form <laughs> yeah. was probably exilic. Second, yeah. Yeah. yeah and so, so it's much later, but it's going to be handed on generation after generations. You could put Song of Solomon in the same thing. So Job and Sol Solomon in some ways are going to fit into early Genesis. Mm -hmm. And so in the timeline, you're going to put them in early Genesis. And like I said, even Moses at this point, this is pre-Torah, so even Moses is working through, is this retribution principle the way that God works or not? Yep. All right, so Job 15, 14 to 16 says, What is man that he should be pure, or who, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold... He puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less the one who is detestable and corruptible, the man who drinks iniquity like water. So in theology, one of the biggest ditches that people get into is they're going to read something out of the Bible, and they're going to say, this is what the Bible says. These are the Do words this. of the Lord. Yeah, thus saith the word of the Lord, and they'll read something like that. And what they might be reading is, and this is, Sometimes hard, but not in this case. Yep. Sometimes it's hard to say, is this what the author thought, but it wasn't or God's character. view? Yeah. Are you simply reading the narrative of the author or the character's view, but this isn't what God thought? Yeah. And this is... <laughs> This is great because at first when you read this... You're like, oh, yep, that's a great proof text for infant depravity. It's basically this friend of Job's like saying, yeah. Job, let me tell you what the way God thinks. And he's saying this and you're going, oh, man, is that the way God operates? Yeah, so this is the voice of Eliphaz the Temanite. He's one of Job's friends who's accusing him. But at the end of Job, God says this about his friends says, it came about that the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said, and the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. It's Job 42.7. Seven, yeah. So basically he says, I'm angry, I'm really upset. Because you've fact, distorted my character. I'm My wrath, I'm going to turn you over to everything that you deserve now because... You've ill-spoken about my character. In fact, everything that you just said isn't true. Yep. All right. So next one. Let's do another. <laughs> Job 25, 4 to 6 says, How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? Or if the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less that maggot and the son of man that worm? So that... that that seems like he's saying, oh, you're, you're born with such yeah, depravity, you're, you're never going to get out of this. Like, this is just what you had coming because of the generational curses or whatever. 
This is Bildad the Shuite, and guess what? Yeah, gets the same things. Here's what he says about him. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up uh, a burnt offering for yourself. And my servant Job will pray for you, and for I will accept sect him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Yeah. This almost sounds like this guy's going to get burnt up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. God's going to send flames so, down again, and engulf him. Don't speak that way about yeah, me. It's a proof text about original sin, but it's said to be a lie in the context of the book of Job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's one that's actually Job's words. So let's, let's read that. Job 14 uh, verse 4. It says, who can make clean out of the unclean? No one. Now, this one you could interpret a whole, whole bunch lot. of different yeah. ways. Now, I would not interpret that in the way that the reform camp does in in basically saying clean, unclean, uh-huh. of being born. Yeah. But that's the way that they use it. Yeah, so they'll it. say, like, see, Job's saying this, and if Job's words are right, then maybe those aspects of what Bildad and that, like, maybe theirs are right too. Yeah. Um, but here, let's let's dig into it a so little So the Hebrew further. word here is tahor, and it's... Yeah, it means clean. Yeah. yeah, it's used a bunch. It's a ceremonial ritual word. Now, again, this is early in the story, but it's interesting that later, when this is going to be written, it's going to be, again, exilic, and so it's going to be hundreds of years of going through ceremonial rituals they mm-hmm. knew exactly what this word meant it's used yeah. almost a hundred times in scripture yeah and it always talks about ritual cleanness regarding people animals places objects it's never about one's nature right yeah <laughs> and there were words we we use this yeah. line all the time i mean in hebrew there's they could have used a word there's five or six words that talk about you know things that are going to be grafted or you know yeah. part of something or inherited inbred is mm-hmm. the hebrew version of that basically and like they could have used that but they don't they use this common word over and over that doesn't mean that way yeah and so then unclean here in this verse um is uh tame and it is also it's about ceremonial uncleanness again used almost a hundred times yeah yeah and it always is talking about people places or objects that are unclean but it never talks about unclean nature yeah (laughs) so so in the law um this talks about it they use this uncleanness the same way that it and having to be clean, uh, they use these same words for a woman who's on her period, um, a woman who's just given birth, someone who's touched a dead body, a man who's had a nocturnal admission, and a whole lot more. And yeah. so, really, I I think that this is really about ritual worship. Yeah. And that, um, and actually, the context of Job fourteen disproves the Augustinian theology. Yep. When you look back two verses before yep. this, it says, two, yep. "says like a flower, he comes forth and withers." And flees like a shadow and does not remain. Meaning that he's birthed clean and becomes unclean. Yep. If Calvinists were correct, this would say that he comes out like a dead flower. Yeah. Right? It would say that. It says it comes out like like a live flower and but it but then it withers. Yeah. So in Job fourteen, when you read it, none of the words in here are going to be talking about a previous condition they're not backdating or going back into the way talking about the nature of man they're all based on action and this is what i'm this is what i again we sound like a broken record but we keep going back and saying this text is actually speaking to the fact that we're responsible for the actions that we do that we Mm -hmm. that nothing carries with us yeah and so all of these proof texts for original sin and total depravity from birth are just wrong when they're 
when we look at the interpretation of it, when we dig right. in a little further. Yep. So yeah, so let's start um, landing the plane yeah. here. Uh, let's look at Jesus and children. Yep. Now, quick, what does Jesus say about children? And so Jesus' words should be like the prime thing we're looking at, right? And again, so if there's any question in the Old Testament, this is where we're going to go to Jesus and we're going to say, all right, how did, how did Jesus maybe clarify the water here? All right, so Matthew 18, 3 to 6 says, And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this kind of goes back to that generational language and that you, you, you need to... You need to become like your parents if the parents told the language <laughs> yeah you know if, yeah. if they're good but if they're raw then you know yeah. there's there's another thing so so it's influential is yeah what it's talking about and so we're to be, if we're to become like a child like you said the ch children trust their parents children allow their parents to influence them what kind of influence are we as as parents but also we need to become like one who is imitates our father in heaven it's really interesting yesterday when we brought, or the last video, I should say, when we were talking about the Yetzer, we were saying that Jesus, you know, clarifies, he reiterates everything the Old Testament said. And this is the same thing in mm -hmm. Matthew 18, that you, you still get the Yetzer Atov principles going yeah. on to it. It's reiterating that building of kingdom character. And if we're to become like children to enter the kingdom, does that mean we need to be totally depraved to enter the kingdom? Yeah. No. I mean, if they're, <laughs> if they're, We've seen over and over that they're born innocent, right? So let's look at Mark now. Uh, Mark 10, 13 to 16 says, And when they were bringing the children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant with them and said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to, the, to such as these. Yeah. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began to bless them, laying his hands on them. This is very similar to the last one. I mean, they just, we're not saying much. We're not giving you much commentary because it just seems it just so black it. and white. Like it just comes out and says it. And so, I mean, Mark basically says the same thing as Matthew. Children are equated to innocence, purity, trust, and they're kind of the... the example of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a great and way so to say So if we it. say that children are totally depraved and vipers and diapers and... Right worthy of God's wrath that goes against the words of Jesus so let's think let's take a time out let's kind of go to just think about this get your philosophical ontological lens on are we born damned I mean that's essentially what John the Calvin's words. camps say doomed from the womb yeah doomed from the womb are are you born and if you if if you don't do anything you're basically just going straight to hell and then there's this weird thing about but not everyone some of them in there are going to be predestined or chosen from the very beginning and those ones are the ones that won the spiritual lottery you know put mm -hmm. apart but basically all babies if they don't grow out of baby stage are are essentially damned like they there's no way they're 
they're going to experience anything yeah. more than that. Yeah. Like John Calvin said, he's like, God might have grace and save some babies that he elected, but he was not going to save every baby. <laughs> and I realize that different Calvinists and different people of Reformed theology think differently, mm -hmm. but for the most part, you're going to get Calvinism and Reformed theology to, to kind of pull in eternal conscious torment and penal substitutionary atonement and so when you put those three things together that that you know it's the cosmic lottery whether you get there with god and if you know even as a baby not i mean essentially all babies aren't going to make that if a mm -hmm. baby dies early they're not going to make know, that so no. and then if you go ect i mean you're basically saying that this god who has over and over said that he is a god of mercy compassion you know grace that this that god is going to torture them never ending mm -hmm. that's really a hard one and this is why you know this is not my word but it's it's words others have used that 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 makes your view of god seem like a monstrous view mm -hmm. so let's kind of look at a conclusion of where we've been what are maybe what's a better way so we looked really at two things today inherited guilt and infant depravity. So inherited guilt, we saw that the Bible says that sins can't be transferred, yep. that we saw that each one is accountable for their own sins, right? And that original sin, though, says that we inherit Adam's guilt, and that actually goes against God's law and right. all the scripture that we saw. Yeah. And then we kind of ventured into infant depravity, and as we see in scripture, babies and children are innocent before the Lord. God does not hold them accountable until they can truly know good from evil yep and some would call this maybe the age of accountability jews yep. refer to it as uh, their bar mitzvah which yep. uh, is aramaic word meaning becoming a son of the commandments that was at age 13 for boys age 12 for girls and that's where i've just said over and over like if you're of a hebraic mindset like this whole conversation isn't a conversation yeah yeah and it says um so we kind of spoke of this in the last episode where we're born with desires yep. um, that we need to learn. We build a character. We build a nature based on our choices yep. and the things we observe, the, the basically the situations we put ourselves into, the environments around us. And we're not doomed from the womb. We have the choice to choose tove or choose raw right, basically right. i put before you life and death blessings yeah. and curses choose yeah. today who you hear that over and over <laughs> it means something yeah <laughs> so yeah so instead um i think jesus invites us into the kingdom to become innocent like children yeah. we, we've all all have sinned we've yeah. all gone off the, the trail but he invites us back into this renewed state that we were at the beginning to bear his name in the world and that's why he says you must become like children to enter the kingdom yeah there's a few takeaways of this but i think the main thing and we started started saying this with the introduction i'm just going to reiterate it is that if you truly believe in like a calvinistic reformed viewpoint and i mean most people would say well i don't believe all of it i just you know i might fall somewhere in the mm -hmm. middle but the problem is is the middle is actually worse than the far you're side inconsistent. You're, you're really inconsistent in the middle and so you know you I, I would encourage people like I think better views are going to be the view Matt and I take or you know if you do go that way it's it's kind of an all-or-nothing view like you know I used to laugh at people that would call themselves two or three-point Calvinists because that's the inconsistency either either be all the way over there or over here mm -hmm. and when it really flushes out 
you're you're going to kind of go back to this this way of sitting down and, and saying, do I truly believe that I was born that way, and no matter what choices I make, I'm I'm consistently still stuck in that. That's where you kind of get these praise and worship songs that Matt won't sing, <laughs> that like over and over, like, you know, say I'm a terrible, wretched, miserable person because the Bible over and over says don't live that way. Yeah. You know, be redeemed. Grab a hold of this promise that God has given you and, and you know, embrace the Exodus moment motive to be become free in Christ and be be totally transformed we shouldn't be stuck in this mud over and over and over we need to be delivered of that yeah i, I think i think you're right i mean so so much of like um this comes down to mindsets yeah like we talked about sowing and reaping last episode what are the things you're sowing into are you, are you sowing into the things of the spirit or are you keep sowing into those things of death like you know it, it's not just all about like what's your picture of yourself and right. stuff like that? No, it, I mean, we're not talking about that. Oh, you just need to, you just, we just need a motivational speaker. Right. Jesus like that. says there's life no, here. Now go, go after, after the it. life. Yeah. But it's not just saying like, you need a better picture of yourself. <laughs> right. That's not like what we're getting at here, but we're saying that, but Calvinists get in the other ditch. Yeah. You're yeah. such a worm, right. you know, like, and that really affects the, can I really overcome this sin? No, I'm such a worm. And over you know? and over, it wasn't just the New Testament authors, but the Old Testament is like this too. It's saying, walk this way. Mm -hmm. Like, God is saying, you know, all right, I was walking with you every day in Eden, and now that's just sort of been me. broken, but but I'm still extending that. Come and yeah. walk with me, and we're going to find a better path. And he's put his spirit in us when we put our trust in him, and so we can do that being enabled by the Spirit. So my mantra is discipleship. And this is where I'd say, you know, I, I don't want to throw rocks at the, the modern-day evangelical church, but I'd say we got to do a better job of discipleship. we got to embrace what it looks like to walk and live in freedom and righteousness, to be set apart from the ways of the world, and just to grasp all the joy and the promises that God has for us. And I don't want to sound like a health and wealth prosperity preacher, mm -hmm. but like we were made to walk in joy with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, this comes down so much to like discipleship of our children. Yeah. Like the, this generational stuff we've been talking yep. about is that it, it starts with us. What can we yep. pour into the next generation, yes. you know, so that they can be disciples that pour into the next generation, that pour into the next and that, and that's what it's talking about here. And so, and, and maybe you weren't raised that way. Maybe we all, we all have stuff we need to break yeah. in our own yeah. life, you know? And so let's do that. It's not yeah. too late to start, <laughs> you know? And so this is a great conclusion. Yeah. I feel like we, we could be done here, yeah. but we're not, we're going to keep going. We've got at least one more episode on this that we want to hit. Yeah. So the next episode, we're going to look at the incarnation. Yeah. What does this mean for Jesus? And we got into some Mary stuff in our first episode. Yep. So we're going to talk about some more stuff with Mary um, and Jesus. And then after that, we're going to hit Romans chapter five in the episode after that. And then maybe bring this to a conclusion. Who knows? We got, we got at least a few more. We got a couple you. more. So thanks for joining us. May God bless you and keep you.